Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, before we get started with today's program, let me just make a couple of quick notes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, shamelessly plug the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. This is a resource that we put out every four years now. Uh, it's a great reference guide for tackling new issues here on Capitol Hill. It pretty much deals with just about every issue that would come across your desk, ranging from today's subject of counterterrorism to taxes to trade, uh, you name it. It's in the, the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's a great reference guide, uh, one that we give to every congressional office free of charge whenever we release one. But if for some reason you didn't get one or your coworker hogs it or you need one for whatever reason, let me know or let another Cato staffer know. We'll be happy to get one delivered to you. Um, also, all the entire uh, publication is available on our website, Cato.org, uh, as is virtually all Cato materials. Uh, also, like to note, uh, next week, I'm sorry, this week, later this week on Friday, in the same room, we're going to be having another Hill event. We're going to be uh, talking about the international war on drugs, which is a somewhat related topic uh, to today's subject. Uh, it's going to be a, a very entertaining and probably spirited uh, uh, exchange there, so we hope you can make that. You can get more information, of course, on our website, uh, Cato.org. With that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our first speaker. Uh, David Rickers is a legal policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Uh, his research focuses on civil liberties, counterterrorism, and criminal justice. Prior to joining Cato, he uh, served in the United States Army as an infantry and special forces officer and uh, performed three tours uh, of duty in Afghanistan. Uh, there he was awarded an Army Commendation Medal, as well as two Bronze Star Medals. Uh, he holds a, a JD from the University of North Carolina. With that, I'll turn things over to David Rickers. Thank you for coming today. Uh, today we're talking about, uh, about terrorism and the strategy of terrorism and, uh, and how terrorism as a tactic uh, – the, the goal is not the objective itself, it's not the attack itself, but what follows in the wake of the attack and how that is far more important uh, in achieving the terrorist group's goals uh, than, than the specific terrorist uh, actions themselves. All right, so terrorism and the cost of overreaction. Um, in fashioning a proactive strategy to prevent future attacks of terrorism uh, and for mitigating terrorism's Harmful effects, should prevention fail, policymakers must account for the possibility that short-term reactions might have counterproductive uh, medium to long-term effects. So, in other words, how we react to terrorism will largely determine whether terrorism as a tactic uh, is perceived as succeeding or failing against us. All right. So, uh, so terrorists always try to uh, induce a stronger state to react in ways that will deliver to them some object or aim that they are unable to accomplish on their own. Uh, this is because, by and large, terrorism is politically motivated violence uh, used by weak, non-state actors against states to raise the cost of that state's policies. And how we react to terrorism, once again, determines uh, as to whether that tactic, these attacks, are perceived as having succeeded or failed. So a strong power victimized by terrorism is very likely to do violence outside of what it had contemplated previously. And sometimes these responses are misdirected, uh, badly directed, and they tend to engender sympathy for the terrorist uh, group's cause uh, as, oppo as opposed to minimizing them. Uh, 
So lashing out against the communities where the terrorists live, where they come from, uh, forces local neutrals into the camp of the terrorists. And these are the people who are actually most powerful in the equilibrium of terrorism. The state is on one side, the terrorist group is on the other. It's the locals in that community, the fence-sitters in, in terrorism, uh, that can be the most powerful actor because they're the ones who could turn in the terrorists uh, or counteract their efforts at a local level and delegitimize them. On it. You want me to do that? Yeah, could you? Got it. I'm on. All right. Look at that. Okay, so look at the three types of overreaction, right? The very first is a waste of blood and treasure. Uh, second is recruitment and sympathy gains. And finally, weakened political or social order. All right, so these are the words uh, right after 9-11 uh, that, uh, that Osama bin Laden said was his strategy. This is the strategy that al-Qaeda has said they are using against us, that all they would have to do is send two mujahideen to the furthest point east to raise a piece of cloth on which it is written al-Qaeda in order to make generals race there to cause economic uh, and political losses and harm to America. All right, so now this is the stated goal that al-Qaeda has said that they will, will want to use their strategy to employ against us to stretch our resources so thinly that we are ineffective in countering them. All right, recruitment and sympathy gains. This is actually where uh, – this is the, uh, the means to the end by which terrorist groups accomplish their goals. Uh, and think of this as the bull in the china shop, a, a state actor in using a grand strategy uh, from 30,000 feet – uh, has broad stated goals, and in trying to achieve those goals, alienates the populations that are actually most important to their success. All right, so terrorism campaigns are driven by the need to produce propaganda against the targeted state actor. So let's stop for one moment and ask ourselves, what was more important about 9-11? 3,000 people dead and some associated property damage, or the images that came with 9-11? The reactions that came with 9-11? All right, and responses that imprison the innocent or produce collateral damage reinforce terrorist propaganda. And we see here historically uh, in both terrorism and insurgencies there is, there is a balance in terms of protecting the population and maintaining legitimacy of the causes for both the state actor and the terrorist group. Uh, and maintaining that equilibrium in your favor is actually the most important part of uh, sustaining a counterterrorism or a counterinsurgency. Uh, we can look back historically if we look at Northern Ireland uh, when British paratroopers opened fire on peaceful protesters on Bloody Sunday, this pushed the camp of public opinion uh, toward the IRA and legitimized uh, to what that point had been a, a very small uh, group with not a lot of uh, political pull. However, the IRA response bombings on Bloody Friday, where they targeted civilians, uh, pushed public opinion back against the IRA and more uh, and delegitimized them to a certain extent within the population. And we can... Uh, and we can see that terrorists can lose every battle uh, but win the war by manipulating information to suit their ends. The French in Algeria won the Battle of Algiers, but the means by which they won the Battle of Algiers, namely torture, drove the population so firmly into the camp of the non-governmental actor, of the terrorist group, that in the end they won the war. And we can also look today at, uh, at American airstrikes in Afghanistan and see how uh, civilian casualties, and, and I think this most recent uh, uh, bombing uh, has shown us not even uh, pure casualties from American action, but it appears 
right now that a lot of these, these casualties or the allegations that casualties were manufactured and that the Taliban themselves uh, may have killed some of these people and, and created the propaganda. I think this is a cycle that we've seen. If you ask reporters in uh, Kabul, who gets there first with the story? Well, it's the Taliban, without fail. Uh, and so the strategy that we must proceed moving forward in a counterinsurgency or in a counterterror campaign is that every time we use force, we have a message because the terrorists do, the insurgents do. So every time we drop a bomb, we have to drop a press conference. Every time we do a raid, we have to drop leaflets. We have to pair our actions with a message. And finally, with the weakened political or social order, uh, a terrorism can cause states to come loose from the ideological moorings. Uh, such as the West traditions of tolerance, individual rights, due process, and the rule of law. And this legitimizes terrorist grievances, even though after the fact, and gives terrorist group leaders greater legitimacy compared to the state uh, that they have attacked in, in the eyes of important audiences. And when the state does so, it sees the moral and ideological high ground, uh, making the terrorist groups rel look relatively more legitimate. If we look back about 10 years, the commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Krulak, uh, talked about a three-block war. Uh, where forces deployed overseas would simultaneously be conducting humanitarian aid, uh, peacekeeping operations, and engaged in, in fierce, brutal ground combat within a very small piece of the battle space. And I think that this actually approximates the three messages that we have to uh, address. We have people where we are winning hearts and minds, uh, and we have our enemies. We have us and them, and, and then the majority of the population actually sits in between. Uh, so when we're winning hearts and minds, we do that. But quite frankly, call me a cynic, but I think that, that what people uh, perceive and what their goals are come not from our propaganda or their propaganda, but come from uh, their own self-interest. So the hearts and minds that we win or that we maintain are by people that share our self-interest. Uh, so the hearts and minds we should care the most about are ours. And then the people that we're fighting, we can give them only fear and respect of our tactical capabilities and our will to use them. But the great mass of the population globally sits somewhere in the middle where we would build what I think and, and what other commanders in, uh, overseas have called trust and confidence, where it's very much an arm's length transactional uh, series of, of negotiations uh, and interactions where we trade safety and security for gains with the credibility of the population. So let's regain perspective. So effective strategies for counting terrorism and for doing so in a manner that does not generate more terrorism in response to our actions begins by putting the problem in the proper perspective. Is this an existential threat? If we look at the quotes of uh, senior members of, uh, uh, of our government, we see that they characterize it as such, that if we don't recognize this as an existential threat, that it's going to be hard to maintain focus. And that uh, in the age of nuclear weapons, that everything has changed and that these, uh, these small non-state actors uh, can... Uh, you know, can, can cause existential damage to us. But honestly, if you look at the violence and bloodshed that can be unleashed uh, by modern industrial straight, uh, states, us, uh, and what can be caused by international terrorism, uh, the, the damage that they can actually cause is very small relative to the damage that we can do to ourselves. And this is frankly is re uh, reflected in the writings of uh, David Kilcullen, uh, who is a senior ambassador, or, uh, advisor rather, to uh, General Petraeus. So rhetoric and the shaping of expectations is more important in the context of counterterrorism operations than in traditional wars. Victory or defeat in most wars is de determined by uh, armies in the field of battle, by 
uh, use of arms, fleets of ships at sea. But by contrast, because terrorists uh, aim specifically at invoking anxiety among the public, uh, measures intended at shoring up the public will uh, are crucial elements of effective counterterrorism strategy. Uh, it's also important that the, the way that the rhetoric uh, shapes perceptions of others, uh, including the communities where the terrorists seek new recruits, and the recruiting and counter-recruiting is, is in essence a struggle uh, in and of itself. Now, if we look at the national intelligence estimate, we see that the jihadist's greatest vulnerability is that their ultimate political solution, an ultra-conservative interpretation of Sharia-based governance spanning the Muslim world, is unpopular with the vast majority of Muslims. And if we look at the current struggle relative to past struggles, uh, we see that all of the, the strategic advantages are actually ours. Uh, if you go back and read The Ugly American uh, and, and look back to the Cold War when we were uh, trying to fight these wars of proxy and fight for world public opinion uh, with our economic systems and, and our political systems versus uh, communism and, and what uh, the, the Soviets and the Chinese were espousing in the third world, that battle for public opinion, that proxy war, they had many advantages. They had a somewhat plausible narrative that central direction of the state, central direction of economic resources, and their political system could provide some uh, sort of just government, and that they could push the public opinion of these people into their camp. But if we look at all of the factors at play now, uh, the, uh, the economic factors, uh, I mean, honestly, who, who could produce more, a, a Sharia-driven uh, state and economy or the Western economy? Uh, and in terms of how people want to live, uh, the, the long-term forces do not trend in favor of any global caliphate uh, ruling the world under Sharia. And I think that, uh, that the prospects of them actually establishing that are so far-fetched uh, that by calling them an existential threat, by elevating the threat, uh, we make them seem far bigger than they are, which plays into the strategy of terrorism, to appear strong when you are weak and to goad the state into confirming your narrative. With that, I'm going to go ahead and hand the uh, podium off to my colleague, Christopher Preble. Well, let's go. You're right. <clears throat> thanks, David. Uh, thanks, David. Just a quick introduction of Chris. Uh, he's the director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He also has a brand new book called The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. He's written a number of other books and, and numerous articles. Uh, that have appeared uh, uh, in major publications across the country and world. Uh, he holds a, uh, a Ph.D. in history from Temple University, and he was also previously a commissioned officer in the United States Navy. Chris. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, David. Uh, welcome again to all of you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, so the second half of our talk today is uh, what I've called an honest strategy with realistic objectives, and uh, uh, hopefully you understand that, that when you talk about counterterrorism in a holistic way, which Cato's been trying to do now for some time, uh, it talks about uh, the, uh, how the response to terrorism can play into the terrorist hands and how, therefore, you require an enormous amount of discipline. Uh, uh, we require an enormous amount of discipline to not confirm their narrative. When I say an honest strategy with realistic objectives, one of the most important things to recognize is that a government that's trying to protect everything protects nothing. Okay? And so one of the things that we have to come to grips with is, is th that 
there are certain things that we absolutely must and, and can uh, uh, prevent, but at the end of the day, it's about building a resilient society, a society that is not living in fear, and a society that can recover well uh, when, uh, when and if uh, t- uh, terrorism attacks occur. Um, now, obviously, there, we're going to talk here. I'm going to talk here in the next few minutes about some of the things that can be done. But I want to re- reiterate what David already alluded to: is this problem uh, that we have of where we take actions, and, the, and a lot of times the terrorists are able to, to twist this and see it as confirming their narrative. And ultimately, uh, they, they do have some advantages. But as David pointed out all of the, the real advantages, the, the, the tangible advantages and things that we really need to build on, uh, we possess, and we need, to, we need to be very aware of that. Um, so, again, perfect security does not exist. Um, another point that isn't said often enough, I think, especially here in Washington, is that perfect security involves many, many different actors. Now, this is obvious, uh, uh, because when you go into any private building, of course, there's security there. Uh, uh, many private actors are doing things, and, and we're doing things before even the events of 9-11. But we need to be uh, clear on what the strengths and weaknesses are of different actors. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Another point is that emergency response uh, occurs primarily at the local level. And the point I would make above all else is that policymakers have to prioritize. They, they uh, beyond not promising perfect security, they have to recognize what their advantages are. I mean, the federal government obviously cannot secure thousands of bridges, sports arenas, airport ports, bus stations, subways, shopping malls, hundreds of skyscrapers. I could go on and on and on. I mean, these facilities, there are simply too many, and the primary responsibility for securing those does fall to local actors, including uh, many times the private actors. Um, and when we talk about response, I mean, go back to uh, the, the quote by, by bin Laden about trying to bleed and bankrupt the United States. Uh, we need to think about all of the things that we're doing that are ostensibly geared towards fighting terrorism, but which are, in fact, uh, uh, a long-term uh, burden on the taxpayers. And we have to ask, for each of those expenditures, does the, do these expenditures make sense? Is there an alternative? Um, our argument is that a lot of the money that is dedicated to the Department of Homeland Security is, in fact, uh, could be better used at a local level, uh, and a lot of that money should really be returned uh, to the taxpayers and to local officials. Um, but I don't want to imply that uh, there are certain things that the federal government in particular has uh, obvious strengths. Uh, one of the things that we do and have been doing both before and after 9-11 is infiltrating and disrupting terror groups. That's a good thing. We should continue to do that. I think those efforts should obviously be lawful in accordance with established law. There's no reason uh, to uh, subvert or go around the law in order to do this. Uh, targeted lawful surveillance of, t- of terror suspects uh, is ongoing, should continue. Uh, a point that needs to be emphasized, I, I, I suspect, is that, yes, there are precursors to mass casualty weapons. We should be doing what we can to control access to that, uh, to reduce uh, the, the, the WMD precursors that are out there, to reduce the total uh, arsenal would be useful. Uh, and, and also, but as I already uh, alluded to, taking precautions to secure against infrastructure, a lot of that's going to happen at the local level. And finally, preparing for attacks in their aftermath. This is mitigating the effects, uh, which ultimately will help to build a resilient society and make us less uh, susceptible to these kinds of things in the future. Um, Another point we, we stress is that a comprehensive strategy has to include a public education campaign. If you look at what 
is out there in the in the public realm right now. There's a lot of these fantastical movie uh, plot threats. They're assumed too uh, too readily by too many Americans as being not just uh, possible but likely in the near future. And I think we need to uh, to have a public education campaign that talks about a terrorist capabilities and what they can and cannot do, what they are likely to be able to do. Too often we talk about their intentions. Yes, they have very, very bad intentions, but that doesn't tell us enough. A public education campaign, uh, a wise one, a concerted one, would force sound estimates of terrorist capabilities to the surface. And I argue a more accurate portrayal of the risks might quell the public demand. There is a public demand for overreaction. That might help to tone that down. Uh, Such communication will also, however, help to ensure that the physical damage from an attack does not metastasize into undue damage to the entire society, which, again, is the terrorist object and which should be our intent and our object to prevent. Um, Indeed, I I argue it is the care that we take in fighting this problem that will ultimately help to limit its effectiveness if it is seen as ineffective, if countries respond well, if they respond in a prudent way, uh, then a lot of the, these times I think these tactics will, will really fall out of favor. We've seen a number of terrorist organizations over the years simply go out of business, and I think that's likely to occur in the future if we focus on a few uh, key elements of disrupting their ability, but most of all, not overreact. Um, now, some of the things that I've already alluded to, uh, the federal government has clear, strength, clear strengths and weaknesses. Uh, some of the strengths, we do not expect uh, a local law enforcement official uh, to have access to the kinds of intelligence that we gather on a regular basis. Of course, sharing that information in a timely fashion with local law enforcement is crucial, but also uh, uh, cooperating with other intelligence organizations around the world. That's important. Uh, uh, and cooperating in, in pressuring and dismantling. That's been ongoing. We'll continue. I think that's correct. Um, and another point that needs to be emphasized is that setting a foreign policy that advances U.S. security interests but does not needlessly exacerbate or invite attacks on in the United States, that also is a function of a, a wise federal policy. You know, if you look at the way that... Uh, the U.S. responded after 9-11. Much of it is perfectly, sens- perfectly understandable. You can understand it from a very, a very human level. It was haphazard. It was poorly coordinated, uh, partly because it was driven by politics. And I think that we've started to see a little bit, a, a little bit more, um, a more systematic, a more uh, rational approach. And I think that we were, we're trying, what, what we're doing at Cato is to try to emphasize that and encourage more of that kind of behavior in the future. Um, some other elements that were federal government assistance to state and local agencies have already alluded to. Uh, let's disseminate that relevant information. Uh, let's maintain a, a border and uh, interdict known terrorists and weapons and, and harmful material. Uh, let's, again, uh, make sure that not just to provide information ahead of time, but also to coordinate with private and, and local actors uh, on how to mitigate the effects after. But to my earlier point about how we responded to terrorism and how we can prevent that in the future. Here's some just very, very basic risk management concepts that we've tried to put out. A lot of this stuff you'll find in the Cato Handbook that, that Brandon alluded to. Here's some very basic questions. What are you trying to protect? What are you tr- trying to protect it from? What is the likelihood of each threat occurring and the consequence if it does? And finally, what action is being taken in response to the threat? But actually, that's not the last question. The last question is, what else is likely to occur as a function of you taking that action? This is where the overreaction plays in. Is your taking this action 
ultimately going to advance American security, advance the security of the people, or not? And that's the question that I think is not asked often enough. There's an impulse to do something and not necessarily think through the second and third order effects. Now, risk assessment is it's obviously pretty easy for us to do in a fairly clinical environment and in a theoretical environment, and politics does get involved. Uh, but that's why we have emphasized so much uh, a communication strategy that is that is part and parcel of the counterterrorism efforts. We have not, I think, seen enough of that counter, uh, communication strategy going forward. A few other concepts of risk management, if I haven't bored you to tears already. Um, what action is being taken in response to the threat? There are actually four things that can be done in response to a terrorist threat. The first is acceptance. Now, this may seem strange, but it really shouldn't, because uh, if a threat is a either very, very low probability or the consequences of that are very low or both, then we do accept threats every day. We accept risks every day. When we uh, get into a car, we accept the risk of being uh, killed or injured in a car accident. We do certain things to, to minimize that. Those kinds of things we accept as part of living in a society. Again, my point earlier about there is no such thing as perfect security and no, no policymaker, no politician should hold that out. Now, obviously, prevention is the right strategy when uh, the, the bad thing that is, uh, that is possible is a very, very high probability or a very uh, high consequences if it occurs. And, and that's the kind of thing that we've been doing in some respects in terms of interdiction, uh, in terms of um, uh, disrupting terrorist organizations. Another element of that is interdiction. Okay? And that means finding a particular threat and interdicting that threat, the, uh, uh, confronting or uh, exerting pressure on an organization or an attacker to eliminate or minimize the likelihood they'll be able to carry out that threat effectively. And finally, mitigation. Mitigation is preparation so that in the event that a bad thing happens, you can recover quickly, that its consequences are reduced. And we do that with response to natural disasters all the time. We obviously cannot prevent uh, natural disasters, hurricanes and and earthquakes and things like that, but we have built a society that is resilient enough that it can recover from those things fairly quickly. We do lay out in the Cato Handbook, there are two separate chapters that deal with this, and this presentation is really drawn from those two chapters. And we spell out a few policy recommendations that I just want to go through very quickly, uh, and then we'll have time for questions. Um, With respect to counterterrorism, policymakers should understand that the aim of terrorism is to elicit overreactions that damage the victim state as badly or worse than the dangerous attacks. I think that quote by David Kilcullen earlier really very, very neatly encapsulates the nature of this problem. Focusing on al-Qaeda leadership, disrupting their plans, and disrupting their ability to carry out attacks in the future is a must. Uh, we have to work with foreign governments, as we have been, to apprehend al-Qaeda operatives and other related terrorist groups, but we also need to be able to take unilateral action when foreign governments either will not or cannot cooperate with us. We have to recognize in that context that some of the most effective counterterrorism techniques uh, since 9-11 have not involved large numbers of U.S. troops on the ground. And in fact, a lot of times the presence of those troops can be counterproductive and has to be thought through very, very carefully. I also think we should stop using the misleading phrase war on terrorism, which I think has already, has already started to take root. I think the Obama administration has made a very important stride in that direction, and I think that, that notion is beginning to take hold, that when you talk about a war on terrorism, it in, implies a lot of things that are not actually accurate and ultimately are counterproductive. Um, that's 
more generally in terms of the counterterrorism perspective. In terms of domestic security, a few points. Focus on the areas where uh, your efforts can make a significant contribution to securing the country and eliminate programs that are better performed at other levels of government or by private actors. And I think that needs to be done. Ensure that efforts are not disproportionately focused on the last last attack, the last event. We need to be thinking proactively. We need to be thinking about what our vulnerabilities are, not simply what they were uh, in the past. Make clear, make clear to the country that no government can protect everything all the time. That is an unrealistic expectation, and I think we need more realistic assessments of what government can and cannot do. And again, on that same point, avoid the overreaction and exaggeration of the threat posed by terrorism. In other words, prevent what can be prevented and recover well from what cannot. Okay? Understand that threat exaggeration is harmful. In my perfect world, the people who engage in threat exaggeration, the people who imply that, ter- that al-Qaeda terrorists are, are poised to take over the earth, establish a caliphate from Morocco to Indonesia, those are exactly the kinds of threat exaggerations that are, that are ridiculous and foolish, but they're also dangerous and counterproductive. And I think that kind of uh, rhetoric really needs to be knocked down because at the end of the day, That is the kind of authority and legitimacy that terrorists seek that they cannot acquire on their own, that we afford to them, that we grant to them by our overreaction. If we do take these steps and we recognize that carefully measured responses deny the terrorists the upper hand they seek uh, but cannot achieve on their own, I believe that a lot of these organizations will simply go out of business because they cannot sustain the kind of support that they need to go forward. They are weak for a reason. They do not have the support of the public at large, and they do not even have the support of that vast middle uh, group that David alluded to. And to the extent that we can ever say that we've defeated terrorism, and I think that's a difficult challenge, but to the extent that we can ever say that we have, it will occur when we recognize that terrorism cannot defeat us. Thank you.